ace today again, so let's just jump into it. Starting with, let's talk about Dr. Brian Hyatt of Arkansas, right? Because he's currently facing seven separate lawsuits for false imprisonment, as well as some allegations of good old fashioned fraud. Starting with the lawsuits, Insider reports that seven patients are suing Hyatt after he and his staff allegedly kept them locked in Northwest Medical Center's behavioral health facility for days against their will with no legal reason for doing so. Reportedly, he and his team would sedate, coerce, and threaten patients into staying longer, even limiting communications with relatives or attorneys. And in some cases, staff threatened to hold the patients for 45 days if they continued trying to leave. And three of the patients were reportedly only allowed to leave when they were escorted out by police. Now, Arkansas law says that if a patient presents a danger to themselves or others, they can be involuntarily kept in a medical facility for 72 hours. But they must be evaluated by a physician within the first 24. And the facility needs to get a court order to keep the patient for any longer. With one of the attorneys for the patient saying, in none of these cases, even when an involuntarily hold was strategically applied to keep people held, were they ever evaluated by a doctor to determine whether they were a danger to themselves or others. It was just done solely for the purpose of keeping them there and to stop the efforts to get them out. But the question is why? Like, why would Hyatt hold these people hostage? Well, like a lot of evil things, money. During their extended stays, Hyatt would overbill the insurance companies of these patients. And this also wasn't his first rodeo. Hyatt's also under investigation for Medicare and Medicaid fraud. And specifically, the state is looking into why he billed insurance at the highest possible rate without ever actually seeing or examining the patients. Now, he has faced some consequences so far. Northwest terminated his contract and he has resigned from the state's medical board, but as of right now, he's not been officially criminally charged. So we're obviously gonna keep our eyes on this and I'll keep you up to date, so make sure you're subscribed so you can stay in the loop. And then Peter Griffin pleaded guilty to running sex parlors. Which one of you is the lucky bride? Not that Peter Griffin, you fucking weirdo. I'm talking about a real person by the name of Peter Griffin. Specifically, the 78-year-old retiree who worked in San Diego as a cop from 1975 to 2002, including working in a vice unit investigating prostitution. And now, prosecutors say that between 2013 and 2022, Griffin and three others owned and operated massage spas where women were actually employed to perform sexual acts. But now, after nearly a decade, they were finally caught, with Griffin pleading guilty to operating the parlors as well as money laundering and wire fraud conspiracy. And the U.S. Attorney's Office saying, according to his plea agreement, throughout the course of the scheme, Griffin used the experience and skills he acquired through his work as a vice detective, and in at least one instance, his badge, to help the business of a law enforcement thwart regulatory inspections, investigations, and any official action against the businesses conceal evidence and maintain a facade of legitimacy. And the DOJ saying he faces a maximum penalty of 30 years in prison. And then, the Barbie movie trailer dropped yesterday, and it may have been one of the hardest cultural resets I've ever witnessed. The fucking former president of the United States had to turn himself in and plead not guilty to 30 34 charges and motherfuckers on the internet were like, I don't care. We need to talk in great detail about Margot Robbie's feet. Only question was how many of those accounts were Tarantino's burners? But all that said, well, well that movie is shaping up for kind of massive success of social media is at least any indication. The recent onslaught of reboots, spinoffs, remakes, that's a much different story. Right? Because there's been a lot of discourse about this lately, especially after Disney announced it would be doing a live action remake of Moana. With Dwayne The Rock Johnson announcing it in a video yesterday suggesting he would reprise his role, saying it's all in early stages. In a response, people kind of see to just be fed up with the remakes. Right, they've done live action Jungle Book, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, we're getting a live action of The Little Mermaid. But specifically in this case, people seem to be annoyed because it's not even been 10 years. The movie came out in 2016. But some arguing this isn't even a way to update something that's outdated or introduce it to a new generation. It's just making the same film they already made again for money. We saw this frustrations double the same day because it was announced that Warner Bros. is actually working on potentially rebooting the Harry Potter books into a TV series. Right, not some kind of spinoff, but just rather another book adaptation where each 
book would be a season of television, with people here seemingly mad for several reasons. Right, some say, how absurd, how unasked for, how typical of this we must capitalize on existing IP whether the audience wants it or not moment, and we're trapped in a creative existential death cycle, with others saying they won't support the show because of J.K. Rowling. But even there, you have plenty of people saying the controversies around J.K. Rowling aside, there's just no way your average Harry Potter obsessed person will care about this without the original cast, and saying that the magic of those movies just can't be replicated. And all of this happening as we learned this morning that there is potentially a Shrek 5 in the works. Though there, I would say, off the heels of the, the Puss in Boots movie, which is, it, it's so, it, it's better than it has any right to be. Fun story, fun times, one of the best villains in a movie. So I will say, there, I'm, I'm a little more open. Especially because, yes, it is still a sequel, it's a continuation, but it's not just another reboot. And then in political news, we've got massive news out of Wisconsin. I mean, this is a huge political shakeup. Because yesterday, a Supreme Court seat was up for grabs and it was scored by liberal Janet Protosiewicz. And her victory will likely mean that for the first time in 15 years, the state's highest court will swing to the left. Right, so the race was between Protosiewicz and her opponent, Dan Kelly, and it was intense. With it becoming the most expensive state Supreme Court race in U.S. history. And when you consider what was on the line, that makes sense. Right, Wisconsin has been a historical swing state, and that court is no different. But the legislature, not so flexible, with Republicans steadily winning majorities for years now, and Democrats accusing them of gerrymandering to stay in power. With that, along with the abortion ban at the center of this race, and both sides seeing this victory as a chance to cement the ban or overturn it. And what's particularly interesting is that we didn't have to guess where Protosiewicz would rule like we did with U.S. Supreme Court justices, where they generally at least pretend to be impartial when trying to get the spot, but in Wisconsin's case, the candidates were open about many of their positions. And so for many issues such as abortion, we know that Protosiewicz is firmly and openly on the side of a woman's right to choose. And this victory has been hailed by Democratic strategists as a possible shift in state politics, although we know how quickly public sentiment can change by the time the 2024 elections roll around. But either way, Protosiewicz spoke to her supporters after her victory and made jabs at Kelly, who tried to overturn the 2020 election results in the state by saying, too many have tried to overturn the will of the people. Today's results show that Wisconsinites believe in democracy and the democratic process. While Kelly, uh, for his part, I think the term was a salty, salty bitch about his loss. Describing his opponent's campaign as the mostly deeply deceitful, dishonorable, despicable campaign I've ever seen run for the courts and adding, The people of Wisconsin have chosen the rule of Janet. Now, I respect that decision because it is theirs to make. I wish that in a circumstance like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent, but I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. But all in all, a massive win for the left here in what's been called the most important election of 2023. And then, Chicago's got a brand new mayor, and depending on your politics, he is either the resurrection or the destruction of this city. Right, for the past four years, Chicagoans have had Lori Lightfoot as their mayor, and when the first round of voting wrapped up back in February, they clearly had had enough of her. I mean, pretty damn rough to be the incumbent and then there be a runoff election, but you didn't even qualify. But they're falling into third place, making her the city's first mayor to lose re-election in four decades. And the reason many believe she lost is that the election was largely seen as a referendum on crime. Right, murders in 2021 spiked to the highest levels on record in 25 years, and there were almost 800 homicides and over 3,500 shooting incidents. But with Lightfoot out of the running, Chicago has faced a choice in the runoff between two radically different philosophies towards solving crime. Right, you had the frontrunner, Paul Vallis, a former school administrator and pro-police moderate Democrat. Then on his heels, you had Brandon Johnson, an activist, teacher's union member, and Cook County commissioner who's a progressive Democrat who has endorsements from people like Bernie Sanders and Liz Warren. And we saw him swiftly rising the ranks, polling in fifth place 
place and then leaping ahead in the second. And that was in no small part because he enjoyed the backing of several city unions, including the Chicago Teachers Union and the Service Employees International Union. Meanwhile, you had Vallis endorsed by the likes of the city's police and firefighter unions, and unsurprisingly, his solution to crime was simple, increase funding for law enforcement. Where he wants to hire hundreds more police officers and generally take a tough on crime approach to the issue. And he absolutely hammered Johnson with attack ads, highlighting his past comments in support of defund the police, pouring twice as much money as his rival into TV. Though to be fair to Johnson, he has since backed off of the defund the police mindset, saying that he wouldn't cut the police budget by a penny, rather saying he would promote 200 more detectives and redirect funds towards social workers who can respond to 911 calls or mental health crises. But at the center of his platform is this idea that you need to attack the deep roots of crime and poverty in crumbling communities, saying he wants to invest in education, affordable housing, public transportation, mental health treatments, and jobs seeking to boost youth employment in particular, and proposing to pay for all this by raising $800 million in taxes on wealthy individuals, businesses, and real estate. But Vallis, on the other hand, had criticized the plan, claiming the Chicagoans are already drowning in property taxes, which he promised to cap, also arguing that Johnson just doesn't have the necessary experience to run a city, and their debate over this got pretty heated. The fact that he's being dismissive of a black man who taught for four years in Chicago public schools is, is, you gotta stop doing that, Paul. You just do. Criticizing his leadership ability and his lack of management competency, that's what I'm questioning. Not his four years as a teacher. When he retires, he'll actually- Then don't bring it up. Well, actually, he'll actually retire with a teacher pension, despite the fact that he's only been a teacher for four years. And we're but, gonna retire you in three days. Me... Right, so the heart of Johnson's critique is the accusation that his rival is just a Republican in disguise, pointing out how he's been backed by donors who also supported GOP candidates and was endorsed by the Chamber of Commerce. Also harping on the police union support, which bit Vallis in the ass when the union's president warned that 1,000 cops would resign and there would be blood in the streets if Johnson won the election. And there was even more weight to the critique when a 2009 interview service in which Vallis said, You think of yourself as a Republican. I'm more of a Republican than Democrat now. So with all of that, right, the stage set, hundreds of thousands of voters went to the polls to decide what kind of Chicago they wanted to see, and the results came in last night, with Johnson narrowly taking the lead by just one point and securing himself the office and thanking his city to thunderous applause. And so today, we celebrate the revival and the resurrection of the city of Chicago. It is time for Chicago to come alive. Come alive, Chicago. And so now we have to wait to see whether this race, which was seen as a battle between the two opposing wings of the Democratic Party, signals a shift in local and state politics across the country. With this, while I'd love to know everyone's thoughts, specifically if you live in or around Chicago, what are your thoughts on the results that we're seeing now? And then, I want to tell you more about today's sponsor, Seed, and their clinically and scientifically backed DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. As you know, I've been taking Seed's DSO-1 for about a year now, and my commitment to better gut health remains strong. And with Seed, it's easy because their probiotic strain research and clinical trial successes are next level. Right, thanks to their Viacap delivery, technology, unique capsule and capsule design, Seed's DSO-1 requires no refrigeration, and probiotic strains actually make it to your colon alive with 100% survivability. But it also goes beyond benefits like gut health, like healthy regularity, ease, bloating, heart health, skin health, and more. It can also be easy to get lost in all the misinformation surrounding probiotics these days. Right? I mean, probiotics are a science. It's important they are developed, manufactured, and vetted with scientific rigor and precision. And from experience, I can say Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is the real deal. So give it a try. In your first month, you'll receive this 30-day supply or refillable glass jar and travel vibe. And after that, they send sustainably packaged monthly refills. And you can get 25% off your first month's supply of Seed's DSO-1 plus free shipping. Just go to seed.com slash DeFranco and use code DeFranco at checkout. And then in international news, let's talk about foreign workers in the UK. So a survey found that only 29% of Brits said the priority over jobs should go to locals last year compared to 65% back in 2009. Except those workers aren't always treated so well once they get there. But human rights groups have consistently warned that six-month seasonal visas open up workers to exploitation, not least because regulations aren't adequately enforced. 
nearly 35,000 migrant workers coming to the UK on those visas last year. And you've got a report from Vice talking to more than 20 such people working at nine farms across their country saying their already meager wages have been stolen by employers. With one woman who worked six hours a day, six days a week, saying she received under 2,000 pounds for two months of work, a thousand less than she said that she was owed. And several more workers from EU plans, one of the UK's largest producers of strawberry and raspberry plants, said that the hours on their pay slips were inaccurate, and saying that when they tried to check how their hours were being reported by the field supervisor, they were just yelled at. With others also claiming they had to buy their own gloves and boots, as well as electric heaters to warm their caravans during winter, despite rules saying that workers shouldn't have to purchase the equipment needed to do their jobs. Not to mention the legal deduction of rent and electricity from their pay. And since Brexit, the UK's economy has become more and more dependent on migrant laborers to fill vacancies in sectors including healthcare, warehousing, and construction. So net migration to the UK rose to a record high of 500,000 last year, with the government steadily increasing the number of visas issued since 2019, looking to dish out as many as 55,000 this year. Which is also why the Conservative government there has faced criticism from many in its own base that it's betrayed the promise made to them in the Brexit referendum, a vote made in large part to stem immigration. And then, Italian culture is under threat from the English language. At least, that is according to Italy's Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney. And we've talked about her before, she's the right-wing politician whose brother of Italy party, which is iconography, and many members with distant roots in the fascist party, won the election last year. Well, she has now proposed a law that would ban the use of foreign words in official communications, penalizing those who use such words with a $100,000 fine, and specifically targeting English, which the proposal claims has dramatically increased in usage over the past 20 years, saying that among the 800,000 or so words in the typical Italian dictionary, there are some 9,000 Anglicisms. And adding, this is demeaning to the Italian language, especially because the UK is no longer in the European Union. So to combat this, the bill requires all office holders in public administration to have, quote, written and oral knowledge and mastery of the Italian language, as well as prohibiting the use of English in official documents, even for things like acronyms and names of job roles in companies operating there. So that means that if you want to do business in Italy, you'll have to make Italian language editions of all internal regulations and employment contracts. All of this leading to some comparing it to Mussolini's commission for the Italianness of language. With this proposal coming not long after a similar bill that would ban lab-grown meat and other synthetic foods, and that following a series of decrees banning the use of flour made from insects like crickets and pizza or pasta, and all of this supposedly meant to protect Italian food heritage, namely the prized Mediterranean diet. And then, finally, today, let's talk about specifics regarding everything that happened with Trump. Right, first ever former president to be criminally charged, officially getting slapped with 34 felony counts. And honestly, a lot of the details, it's this nitty-gritty legal junk, it can become very boring, but this is an incredibly historic case, so I'm gonna try and break it down and make it consumable. So first up, there are two key documents that were made public yesterday, the 16-page indictment against Trump, and a 13-page statement of facts that lays out the case in detail. There's one thing that's very important to understand is that the charge of falsifying business records on its own is usually a misdemeanor under New York law, with it only being able to be bumped up to a felony when it's done with intent to commit or conceal another crime. And of both the charging documents and public statements, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg outlined three different categories of crimes that he alleges that Trump was trying to hide with his actions. State election laws, federal campaign contribution laws, and making additional false statements, including to tax authorities. With prosecutors making it clear in their statement of facts that it's that first area, state election laws, where the real meat and potatoes are. Writing that Trump repeatedly and fraudulently falsified New York business records to conceal criminal conduct that hid damaging information from the voting public during the 2016 presidential election. Specifically, and this is a key thing, this is the crux of their case, the prosecutors argue that between 2015 and 2017, then-candidate Trump orchestrated a scheme with others to influence the 2016 presidential election by identifying and purchasing negative information about him to suppress its publication to help his chances of winning the election. Right, that being a practice we've talked about before, catch and kill. With the prosecutors continuing that in order to execute the unlawful scheme, the participants violated election laws and made and caused false entries in the business records of various entities in New York. And adding that Trump and others involved also took steps that mischaracterized for tax purposes the true nature of the payments made in furtherance of the scheme. Right, so that's the third crime bucket, false 
falsifying business records in part to deceive state tax authorities. Okay, so that covers two of the secondary crimes that raises to a felony level matter, but the federal campaign contributions one requires more context. And to get that, we have to dive a little bit deeper into the details of the case itself. Where the statement of facts outlines three catch and kill schemes Trump allegedly engaged in alongside his then lawyer, Michael Cohen, who's identified in the documents as lawyer A and David Pecker, the former CEO of American Media Inc. One of those schemes, of course, is the payment at the center of this whole scandal, the $130,000 in hush money Cohen gave porn star Stormy Daniels so she wouldn't sell the story of her alleged affair with Trump mere weeks before the 2016 election. And the other two actually happened before that. The first took place in the fall of 2015, shortly after Trump announced his candidacy when AMI paid a former Trump Tower doorman $30,000, with him reportedly trying to sell a story about a child Trump had out of wedlock, with AMI later concluding that the story wasn't true, but still deciding to keep the catch and kill agreement until after the election. And then the final alleged example happened in June of 2016, when AMI paid $150,000 to former Playboy playmate Karen McDougal, again, to secure this woman's silence about an alleged affair she had with Trump. And according to the statement of facts, Cohen was going to reimburse AMI, but that never took place on the advice of AMI's counsel. And that's actually very notable here because all 34 of the charges against Trump stem specifically from the payment Cohen made to Daniels and how Trump reimbursed him. Also, another key thing to note is that Trump wasn't charged with 34 different crimes, rather he was charged with 34 different counts. And this is kind of where things get even more technical, so I'm gonna kind of give the very broad strokes and keep it as short as I can. Right, so according to the statement of facts, after the election, Trump arranges to reimburse Cohen for the $130,000. Cohen and the CFO of the Trump Organization agree that he'll be paid $420,000 in reimbursements via 12 monthly payments of $35,000, and the CFO doubling the $130,000 so Cohen could characterize the payment as income on his tax returns instead of a reimbursement. With that being a specific example of that third category of crimes that Bragg says Trump was trying to cover up, additional false statements to tax authorities. And over the course of the year, Cohen has sent 11 different payments, the first two coming from a trust that held the Trump organization's assets after he became president, and the last nine being paid out from Trump's personal bank account. But, and this is the key thing here, all of the payments were falsely recorded as a monthly retainer for Cohen. But reportedly, that retainer agreement never actually existed, but that's how the payments were recorded on the checks to Cohen, the invoices he submitted to the Trump Organization, and then the Trump Organization's ledgers. And that's massively important because it's the reason why Trump's facing 34 counts. He's not just being charged with the 11 checks. He's being charged for every single time the payments were falsely recorded in the checks, invoices, and ledgers. And this is also where the second category of crime Bragg alleges Trump was trying to cover up comes in. Right, if the catch and kill payments were meant to silence negative stories during the election, as prosecutors claim, then they're considered political spending. And so as an agent of a candidate or campaign, Cohen would be bound by federal laws for contribution reporting and limits, right? And we've seen Cohen actually plead guilty in serving time for violating campaign contribution laws with a payment to both Daniels and McDougal. And that's something that the statement of facts specifically mentions, with it also noting that AMI additionally admitted to federal prosecutors that it had made those hush money payments before the 2016 presidential election and thereby influenced that election. And those last two points are very, very notable because the prosecutors are clearly trying to show that these crimes were committed and Trump acted to cover them up. But, as Axios explains, and this is another key thing, in order to convict, Bragg will need to prove Trump tried to conceal crimes that he has not been charged with. And as a result, many legal experts have said that this case is risky, right, because it could be very hard to prove that the hush money payments were made with the intent of influencing the election. Right, that's the crux of the argument that Trump violated election laws. And what's more, state election laws usually aren't applied to federal campaigns. And on the flip side, Bragg doesn't have the authority to prosecute Trump for federal campaign violations. And it's unclear if he can invoke a crime he doesn't have jurisdiction over, or if a judge would even go for that argument. Now, some of said that the third crime Bragg says Trump tried to cover up, falsifying records to commit a state tax crime, that may actually bolster this case because it's much simpler and clear cut. And notably, each count against Trump carries a sentence of up to four years in prison. But importantly, the charges don't have a mandatory sentence, so even if he was convicted on all counts, he might not necessarily get time. In fact, legal experts say that because he does not have a criminal record, it's actually unlikely that he'll be sent to prison at all, even if he was convicted. But all that said, as far as when we're going to see more movement here, it's not quite clear. Prosecutors have asked the judge to start the trial in January, but you have Trump's team saying that's just too soon and still
instead, suggesting next spring. And as far as Trump, for his part, he's responded to all this as you'd expect. Complain, complain, lash out, complain, and fundraise. With his campaign moving very quickly yesterday to start fundraising off of all of this, including by launching a new t-shirt with a fake mugshot of Trump. With Trump also giving a speech at Mar-a-Lago last night in front of adoring fans. With it basically just kind of rambling on and on about the injustice of the legal system and how could this all possibly happen to him, the best and most innocent man on earth. Complaining that the judge overseeing the case was a corrupt Trump hater, even going after his family as well. Also going on a rant about the many, many other investigations he's currently facing, particularly the classified documents and Georgia probes. Which on that note, right, this is just the beginning. Like his final takeaway, Trump is facing other legal battles that are much more serious and potentially much more damning. So I'm not gonna hold my breath until Donald Trump is held accountable. But however these things play out, it is important to note, this is probably just the beginning. And that's where today's show ends. Thank you for being a part of another daily dive into the news. But as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow.